you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. And to be joined by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com. Andy Klein with us. And from Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine critic Charles Solomon. First up this week, The Eternal Daughter, starring Tilda Swinton. It's written and directed by Joanna Hogg. Tim, please start us. Uh, um, a, a total of only seven actors... But eight characters in this Joanna Hogg film, a uh, very stylized film, uh, in particular because this one is sort of shaped like a ghost story. Joanna's films are very stylized anyway, but this one has this very sort of specific dyna- uh, uh, dynamic. And we have this mother and this daughter who show up at this uh, hotel, more or less in the middle of nowhere, where no one else seems to be. There only seems to be this clerk and this this old man who's taking care of things. And and both of them are played by Tilda Swinton, the mother and the daughter, thus the eight characters and seven actors. And we begin this movie um, in this setting that was once the mother's childhood home, back before the war when she was a little girl. And now it's a hotel. And now it's a hotel, and the daughter is intending to cultivate from the mother her memories of her childhood in this place so that she can write a script. She's a filmmaker. And if this is a ghost story, it's about the the ghosts of the unconsidered past uh, that might, might be dug up. And as we work our way through this movie, this extremely deferential daughter, she's very caring of her mother, she's a middle daughter, uh, begins to realize that bringing her mother to this place from her, from her deep childhood uh, may evoke some, some, some ghosts of her memories that are not good. And, you know, this movie is very slow, it's very methodical, it's very moody, and you do feel like you're in a ghost story. And If there's a mystery, it's the mystery of these, these things that are... Um, but it has a sense of, of, of dissatisfaction because if you have a movie like that, you want it at the end to sort of wrap itself up to say something. This one doesn't. There is a moment in the middle of the film where, where the daughter character has this crying drag, this really cathartic crying drag. She's just wailing uncontrollably, and her mother, you know, also Tilda Swinton, is sitting over there trying to comfort her. And when I thought about it later, I thought to myself, this doesn't happen at the end of the movie. I thought that I think that that was the moment. That was the moment that was supposed to be cathartic for all of us, but it doesn't happen at the end of the film. It's about three-quarters of the way through the film. But it was the one moment in the film that really grabbed me and held me taut to my seat. So, an interesting film, but, you know, I'm not that big of a fan of those other two Joanna Hogg movies, those Souvenir, Souvenir 1, Souvenir 2, also Tilda Swinton playing her mother in those films. So, uh, it's a style of film, kind of like a ghost story, but not really. We're talking about The Eternal Daughter from filmmaker Joanna Hogg starring Tilda Swinton. Andy? I feel like I'm all out on my own on this one. I uh, Everybody I've talked to loved it. I say it's spinach, and I say to hell with it. Um, <laughs> I, it's It's really, yes, it's like a ghost story, and it's filled with all sorts of creepy animations. And there's a plot reveal at a certain point, which I guessed at literally five minutes into the film. And then I abandoned my guess because things happened that seemed to totally contradict that plot reveal. And then it happens anyway. Uh, I thought this was uh, all striving for meaning and delivering nothing other than the usual knockout performance by Swinton who really can't do much wrong. Two knockout performances. You really buy <laughs> her as the daughter and the mother. Actually, three. Three. Oh, indeed. There's that very late shot that's different. Yes, three performances. The Eternal Daughter, rated PG-13. Joanna Hogg, the writer-director. Tilda Swinton stars, and uh, it's in select theaters uh, like Lemley's Royal in West L.A. and the Look Dine-In Cinemas in Glendale. Lady Chatterley's Lover stars Emma Corrin. The film is directed by Laure de Clermont-Tonnerre. 
The film's written by David McGee, based, of course, on the D.H. Lawrence novel. Tim, what did you think of this newest version of Lady Chatterley's Lover? Well, I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. Yet another scandalous uh, version of D.H. Lawrence's uh, scandalous novel from the late 1920s, more or less about desire and fidelity and infidelity and, and, and passion uh, and how we define these things. It was grand, uh, a band in the United States and England. It was only published in Italy for, for quite a long time, for years and years and years. This isn't a word. Hot. Very, very hot. Glossy, filtered, gauzed, uh, mostly seething with pain and passion and desire and all of that kind of stuff. As we watch these extremely good-looking people naked and having sex just everywhere they can, they just can't stop themselves. And that's the thing that I like about this movie. It's the D.H. Lawrence yet again. It's been done a bunch of times back in 82, Silver Crystal, uh, in that uh, Just uh, Jacqueline's film. Uh, uh, there, was a, there was a series with Jolie Richardson back in 93, which is interesting because Jolie is in this movie playing a different role. She played mm. Lady Chatterley in the other role. And there's been Lady Chatterley's daughter and Lady Chatterley's cousins and Lady... <laughs> just all, all of them. Uh, uh, and, you know, and, and, and they're... It, they're all about the same thing. This is interesting because it is sort of post-Me Too. And the way that you tell this story uh, and, 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 and actually capture these, these images on film without sort of violating the sort of notions behind the sort of Me Too movement, the actors and actresses, it's very interesting. So it's very delicate in the way it does that, but it does it without abandoning the passion, the sort of raw sexuality that was the point of the D.H. Lawrence. This is sexy. It's hot. We're talking about Lady Chatterley's Lover, starring Emma Corrin, uh, who will be with our John Horn later this hour in conversation about the film. Laura de Clement-Tonnerre is the director of the film. It's rated R, given Tim's description. That's no surprise. Mm -hmm. And it's streaming on Netflix. EO is uh, set in Poland and Italy. The drama is directed by Jerzy Skolomowski, who co-wrote the film. Andy, what do you think of EO? Uh, EO is interesting. It's it's kind of vaguely a remake of uh, Robert Brasson's classic. Oh, has I'm not going to pronounce this right. Oh, Hazard Balthazar, um, which was. Life through the POV of a donkey. And in this one, Eo is the donkey, and we see him uh, get ripped away from the circus. Animal activists have shut down the circus, and he's torn away from the woman he doesn't act with. It's not that kind of act. It's not like Lady Chatterley's lover. Um, uh, that, you know, that loves him and he loves her. And he's just shunted from place to place and adventure to adventure and sees all sorts of really horrible behavior on the, you know, by humans. Uh, it's relatively engaging given that you've got a donkey as the lead. I mean... It's not the most expressive kind of face, but uh, Skolomowski does keep you involved with that donkey and what it's experiencing. So I thought it was uh, uh, kind of an accomplishment, and it does not overstay its welcome, let me put it that way. And then Isabel Huppert shows up for five minutes, and that's the end of the film. EO, Tim. Uh, to me, this film is interesting in that we have this donkey that's more or less on a walkabout after he leaves the, the, the circus. And he, the donkey is minding its own business. And people keep messing with this donkey. Uh, if, if, if people would just leave the donkey alone, the donkey would be fine. But he finds himself, his, his, his um, agency, to the extent that the donkey has any agency, always usurped by these people. Even the ones that love him and want to help him and, and engage him kindly, he, the donkey didn't ask for any of that. Leave the donkey alone. You know, there are lots of animals that ask us to see the world through the, through the eyes of the Benji. All those Benji movies, same thing. Uh, Disney, every Sunday, every Sunday a Disney movie with an animal, and we were meant to. So it's clever, but not particularly original. Uh, and, and, and while I appreciate it, I, I think that what we should take away from it is leave the donkeys at all alone. Just leave them alone. They don't need your help. EO <laughs> is the film, uh, the film again from Jerzy Skolomowski. It's unrated. Uh, the film's in Polish with English subtitles. You can see it at the Alamo Draft House, downtown L.A., and multiple Lemley locations. EO again is unrated.
The documentary Killing Me Softly with His Songs uh, tells us about the life and work of composer Charles Fox, who did many of the popular television theme songs back in the 1970s. Of course, uh, the hit song Killing Me Softly with His Song. Uh, The film was directed by Danny Gold. Charles. Well, I will confess that as someone who spends most of his time listening to obscure Baroque operas, I really wasn't aware of Charles Fox's work, and I feel I'm quite familiar with it now thanks to this absolutely delightful film. Uh, Fox is in his 80s. He's still clearly sharp as a tack. You see him performing recently in Cuba with some musician friends. You see him performing in Paris at a tiny jazz club with uh, Alexandre Desplat, among others, uh, reminiscing so touchingly about um, his piano teacher, uh, again, it's a wonderful introduction to this artist, his music, his work. My only criticism would be that they tend to keep songs in their entirety when they're performed. So sometimes it feels like it's not sure if it wants to be a concert film or a documentary. But an absolutely delightful film, beautifully made and produced and warm and charming and uh, I, w- I was just delighted with it. His hit songs include, in addition to Killing Me Softly, I Got a Name, which was a hit for Jim Croce, Ready to Take a Chance Again, and then the themes from Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, <laughs> The Love Boat, Wonder Woman, mm-hmm. very prolific composer, mm-hmm. Charles Yes, Spies. to tell the truth. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the Wide World of Sports. And then he does a duet of that song with Jim Croce's son, and they talk about relations with their fathers and, and what the song meant. And it's, again, a very genuine, uh, touching moment. Killing Me Softly with his songs. The documentary is unrated. It's at Lemley's Town Center in Encino. Also out this week is Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power, a documentary from Sam Pollard and Gita Gambier. Tim? Well, this is just wonderful, wonderful uh, archival footage from the period. Never before seen uh, much of this footage. Uh, often of people, names that we don't often associate uh, with this movement, too. Lounge County, Alabama, um, is is one of the counties that the Selma to Montgomery March would travel through. Indeed, it's the largest county that that march would travel through. It was in an 80% black county. It was not a single registered black voter. At all. This is in 1960. This is in 1960, 1965 is when the, when the actual march. So we already saw across the 60s. Um, so, so the black folks um, begin what they call the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, LCFO, uh, that they perform, that they uh, form to change this situation and try to register black folks to vote. They still could make no headway because even when they could register black folks to vote, um, all kinds of things were done by the Democratic Party to stop those black folks from taking. So they decided to form their own party, the Black Panther Party. Now, I know we think of the Black Panther Party, we think of the 1966 yeah. Black Oakland. Oakland, all of that, Bobby Seale, Hue, Huey Newton, all of that. Huey and Bobby asked permission from this Black Panther, this political party, to use that emblem in the name in the party that they began in, in, in Oakland. So that emblem is the same. That Black Panther, that's the same emblem. But this was, a, this was a political party. This was the party that was on the ballot. Black folks were able to go to the polls and vote for candidates running in the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was never a political party in that way. That's the distinction here. I've never heard it. Had you heard this story, Tim? Yeah, well, yeah, because it? I'm from St. Louis and Missouri oh, and SNCC okay, and, yeah. and all that kind of SNCC was, was, was uh, Stokely Carmichael was basically uh, kind of ridiculously young Stokely Carmichael in this film. I think he's 19. Uh, in this film was, was, was the person who suggested the beginning of this party. Um, and this is a very interesting film in that much of it, while we see Martin Luther King and all of those folks from the Southern Leadership Council, we see all of these young, young folks from SNCC, many of whom are still alive and thus in this film because they were sometimes a generation younger than the folks in Martin's party, you know, John Lewis's, uh, and, and they, Ella Taylor, folks like that. And they talk about what they did. Ultimately, they were able to get the first black sheriff 
elected in this county in 1970. It's a very powerful film, particularly, again, all kinds of archival footage that I have just never before seen. We're talking about the documentary Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power. Sam Pollard and Gita Gambier are the filmmakers. The movie is unrated, and the documentary is at Lemley's Monica Town Center in Santa Monica. Coming up, we'll hear about another documentary, this time from acclaimed filmmaker Laura Poitras. Uh, it's about artist Nan Golden. We'll also hear about Evangelion, a 3.0 plus 1.01, Thrice Upon a Time. I just love these titles of the <laughs> Japanese anime. <laughs> no one else titles movies well, like again, this. It was spoofed in Martian successor Nadesico. Of course it was. <laughs> Charles will tell us all about it when we continue on Film Week in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up a little bit later this hour, our John Horn talks with actor Emma Corrin about the new film Lady Chatterley's Lover. Corrin is the star of that Netflix streaming film. But we continue with our critics, Tim Cogshell, Andy Klein, and Charles Solomon. We'll hear next about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed from documentarian Laura Poitras. Uh, this follows the life of artist Nan Golden. Andy, please tell us about All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Uh, well, this film seems to be split between two main purposes. It it really is a biography of Dan Gold. And at the same time, it's built around her campaign against the Sackler family, who were the villains behind the opioid crisis and who were art uh, philanthropists with galleries in every museum in the world, practically. And she feels like their names have to be taken down because these evil people were responsible out of sheer greed for a trillion-dollar crisis that's killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, the film goes back and forth between that current crusade and the story of her life and how she grew up to be an artist uh, and became an AIDS activist, which felt sort of out of chronological order a little bit. But she's a fascinating character, and the issues are great. Um, I thought it was just an edge too long. It's just over two hours, and I think it could have been tightened up. But she's uh, she's worth knowing about, and there is sort of a, a, a relative kind of triumph over the Sacklers, though it's not really justice. All the beauty mm. and the bloodshed, Tim. Yeah, two films, right? Uh, Nan Golden, you know, sort of iconoclastic uh, culture photographer, uh, worked as a sex worker, worked as a, a t all of this very interesting. Nan Golden's life, extremely interesting. One of the things that happened to her is that she got hooked on uh, these opioids, uh, and, uh, and and it caused her a, a great deal of distress. And, and and I suppose that that story would would be a portion of a story of a film about her, because there should be a film about her. And then you have the Sackler family and all that they've done with the uh, with the art galleries and their name on these art galleries. And all of this was about get, literally getting their name off of these galleries. Um, and and that's a story too, uh, which we've seen and we know. But 
except for she got hooked on opioids and, and led this crusade. Uh, these these two things don't seem to go together for me uh, too terribly much. Uh, and I think that what I really need here are two different films. And each of these films would perhaps refer to one another, but... I just think these are two different movies. And this has one movie. It's just two incomplete movies. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed is unrated. It's at the AMC Sunset in West Hollywood. Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.01, Thrice Upon a Time, the fourth and final installment of the rebuild of Evangelion Films. Charles. Well, this is the culmination of more than 25 years of filmmaking and storytelling and one of the real watershed pieces of Japanese animation. In 1995, Anno created his TV series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, it was enormously influential. It was a mixture of Jewish and Christian mysticism and symbology and robot battles and speculation about the future evolution of humanity. When it ended, it was so popular, more than 10% of the TVs in Japan were tuned to that final episode. But it didn't have an ending. And Hideaki Anno recut the last episodes. He made them into a feature. Then he did a second feature. None of it brought the studio to a conclusion, sorry, the, the story to a conclusion. Then in 2002, he announced he was doing this four-feature rebuild of the story that would be not restricted by technology or budgets or anything else he had had to deal with. And this is the final one. And it brings the story of the psychic um, cyborg pilot Shinji Ikari to its conclusion. He finally has found an ending. It's a very powerful film. It's a very well-made film. The problem is if you haven't seen the first three and probably the TV series, it's not going to make a hell of a lot of sense. But it this is, again, a, a watershed work in Japanese animation. It's influenced any number of films. It's been spoofed. It's been... Uh, parodied. Anna was a really interesting filmmaker, so it's an important work, but you need to do your homework before you go. If you saw the three previous rebuild films, would that set you up for this? Yes, although it, it again takes the story in a completely new direction. The first one is basically the first six episodes of the TV series. Two and three kind of swing in a new direction, and this is something nobody saw coming, but it's a satisfactory ending to that story after more than 25 years. Do you know how this final film was done in Japan so far? Oh, it was, a, it was the number two film in Japan last year. It made over $92 million, despite COVID restrictions. So um, it was just at the last minute it was beaten out by uh, the Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, Kaisen movie. Um, all, all four of the top box office hits in Japan last year were animated. Wow. Is that, is that unprecedented, do you know? Uh, it's There are usually a couple in the top group, but then... Uh, up until the last couple of years, that's also been the case in this country, that you know the Pixar and Disney films have led the box office. We're talking about Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.01, Thrice Upon a Time, fourth final installment of the rebuild of Evangelion films. Uh, again, uh, it's directed by Hideaki Anno. Uh, the uh, film uh, also uh, is unrated. It's in Japanese with English subtitles, and you can see it at uh, the Regal and AMC Theaters select locations on December 6th. December 8th and December 11th. That's next Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. The film's spoiler alert is a dramatic comedy starring Jim Parsons and Ben Aldrich. Michael Showalter is the director. Tim? Yeah, yeah. Based on a book by a fellow named Michael Ossiello, who wrote a book about his relate, who's a, a, a writer, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s for TV Guide, writing about all of the wonderful television shows that we were watching during that period, and his boyfriend, Kit Cowan. Uh, spoiler alert, the hero dies in the end. Indeed, this is a story uh, about the... the um, uh, king of all maladies, uh, taking his his uh, longtime um, uh, husband from him. Eventually, uh, these these films come in a few different flavors. Uh, the first one is is where you know we're going to face all this with, with, with great humor and jokes and uh, jokes written to the purpose, and uh, this is meant to alleviate the suffering. And then you know the the character dies in the end. The second is everything is horrible, uh, and uh, and uh, this, that's the, the nature of what this is. And then there's the third kind, uh, which reaches for something true. Uh, for humor without jokes, uh, for tragedy without horror. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, every, every now and again, a, a film achieves that. This is one that achieves that. Um, uh, I, I, I like the way the story is sort of crafted in that um, you have all of these things, but you never feel like you're being drugged uh, in, 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 into a hole. Uh, yet you never feel like we're going we, to we're gonna dance and tap dance our way through this horrible cancer diagnosis. Um, so I, I appreciate that about this show. Michael Showalter did The Big Sick. Uh, yeah. a, a couple of years ago. So he has a sort of sensibility for these sorts of things. I deeply appreciated this, uh, partic- particularly its third act. The film doesn't end with the death that we know will happen. There's another act after that. And I deeply appreciate that about this film. Spoiler alert, the film starring Jim Parsons and Ben Aldrich, Michael Showalter directed. The adaptation of the book, Spoiler Alert, was done by David Marshall Grant and Dan Savage. It's rated PG-13 in select theaters for a week and then goes into wide release next Friday. The animated Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules, is directed by Luke Cormican. Uh, Charles, what would you think? Well, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series is a very popular set of uh, novels aimed at adolescents several years ago. Big, big sellers. You know, I know a lot of people whose kids were reading them. Uh, They've been filmed in live action about 12 years ago. Now this feels like we're trying to revive the franchise by doing them in animation that's based on the author's drawings, which are little more than stick figures. So they're not particularly attractive to look at. They don't allow for much expression in the animation. Um, the the uh, Greg, the title kid, doesn't even have eyebrows, so it's hard to give him anything that will read as an expression. Um, it's a live-action situation. He and his big brother get in trouble, and although his big brother is mean and you know is busy with his rock band, they end up bonding, which I think a lot of people who have mean older siblings aren't going to buy. But there's there's no reason to animate it. The, you could just rewatch the live action film, uh, and probably get a better feel for what this story is talking about um, than than this. This is the second one in a series. I assume they're going to do them all, but I don't see why. What mm. What are the reasons, Charles, that they would limit the animation? Is that just simply a cost factor, or stylistically, is there some reason they would do? I that? suspect it's a mixture of both. That sort of the gimmick is, yeah, he did these simple little again, almost stick figure drawings to illustrate the original books. So we can put those on the screen. But again, they're not terribly animatable. They're not expressive. Yes, you can move a stick figure, but can you make a stick figure act convincingly in animation? And the answer seems to be not in this case. Well, and and then would seem to put all the more pressure on the voice talent to be able to bring to the stick figure what the drawing can't. Yeah, and as a result, the film is very, very talky. Um, again, Richard Armour years ago spoofed King Lear and said that Gloucester's fate is after they put his, his eyes out, they talk his ears off. <laughs> and that's what they seem to be doing here. These characters just never shut up. <laughs> Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules, is the animated comedic drama. It's streaming on Disney+. Plus. Luke Cormican, the director, uh, the screenplay by Kathleen Shugru. Uh, it's rated PG. The action comedy romance Four Samosas is set in the little Indian neighborhood, Artesia. Uh, the film is written and directed by Ravi Kapoor. Uh, Andy, what did you think of Four Samosas? Uh, this is a, a, a very low budget, uh, obviously labor of love film. Uh, not very interestingly shot, but incredibly likable. I mean, it's just an amiable entertainment, and it gives us a view of sort of misfit kids within that community, which we never see represented on screen. Uh, It is reasonably funny, uh, a little underpowered, but uh, they mix it up and they keep it short, and like I say, it's awfully likable. And do you get a real sense of place? Oh. Do you feel like you're really in Little India, in, in Artesia? Yes. I mean, basically all the characters are Indian American. Uh, it, I, I've left the plot out. They pull, the kids pull a heist against a rich store owner 
who one of them has a grudge against, and they completely screw it up. It's it's a comedy of errors that way. And uh, yes, it does give you a sense of that community, which I've only been to a couple times to see Bollywood movies. Uh, and uh, it, but you know, to me, it was valuable as a representative of something of that area of LA that essentially never shows up in movies. We're talking about the film Four Samosas. It's an action romantic comedy from writer-director Ravi Kapoor. It's rated PG-13, shot on location in Little India. The film stars Vank Pontula, uh, Sunal Shah, and Sharmita Bhattacharya. Uh, and uh, the film is available to be seen at Lemley's NoHo in North Hollywood, at the Harkins Theater Cerritos, and available for on-demand viewing for Samosas. And, uh, you know, this, this reminds me all about how many great communities there are in Southern California to set films. And I feel like so many of these communities, Tim, are really underutilized for movies. Oh, absolutely, uh, uh, Koreatown for sure. Uh, uh, but even out here in the in, in the valley, uh, some of the, some of the Asian communities not nearly seen enough uh, in, in in cinema. Every now and again, we'll get a glimpse of, of some of the Latinx communities, Ball Heights, and places like that, but not nearly as it ought to be. Uh, the TV series Bosch uh, has done a great job of getting out on locations throughout Southern California to giving a real sense of place. But just seems like there's so many chances for movies to really do this and to immerse us uh, in into those locations. So um, after hearing about Four Samosas, it would be great to see that mm. uh, with, with more communities. When we come back, we'll continue with our critics and hear about the South Korean action film Hunt uh, from uh, director Lee Jong-jai. Also, we'll hear about the quintessential quintuplets movie, which is another Japanese animated film this week. We're keeping Charles Solomon busy. <laughs> and Christmas with the Campbells, uh, which is uh, a brand new uh, film that's streaming on AMC+. Those and more movies are coming up on Film Week on KPCC with our critics Charles Solomon, Andy Klein, and Tim Cogshell. Also coming up are John Horn in conversation with the star of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is streaming on Netflix. Emma Corrin will be with John Horn. It's Film Week on KPCC. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Film Week on KPCC. In just a few minutes, our John Horn talks with actor Emma Corrin, who stars in the latest version of Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is streaming on Netflix. Right now, though, we continue with the theatrical films of the week from South Korea, the action thriller Hunt. Andy, please tell us about it. Uh, this is the directorial debut of the star of uh, Squid Game. And he certainly surrounded himself with seasoned professionals because this is a massive action film with massive, massive shoot 'em up ep episodes. I mean, the body count in this film is in at least the hundreds, if not the thousands. It's about political intrigue in Korea in the 80s. And these two guys who are both 
part of the Korean CIA who are rivals and there's a mole within the organization and maybe it's one of them and they're sort of friends and they're sort of like each investigating each other a bit like the departed that way um the problem with the film it's fast moving it really if you're just in the mood for car chases and shoot em outs it's great the problem is that the political background is not very well explained and from the little research i was able to do after seeing it it really is a fantasy of events that couldn't possibly have happened uh just taking off very slightly from what the actual political situation in south korea was in that period but it moves real fast it's over two hours and i did not resent that at all. Hunt is the film uh, Korean uh, action thriller, Tim. I'll say action thriller. You remember that big shootout scene in Heat, Michael Mann's Heat? Oh, yeah. That happens, that happens four times. In the, that scale happens four times in this movie. It opens with one of those. Uh, and then it does it again and again and again, espionage and all of this kind of stuff. And it is long and it is dense. I happen to have been in the Air Force in the early 1980s, and these events are seen. It was it was the May 18th democratization movement, which is a big deal. But we forget the guy who was president uh, of of South Korea. He was not a democratically elected president back then, and he was kind of a tyrant. And the Koreans sort of put up with it because you know the guy in North Korea was even scarier. The guy's the guy's dad. And then there was uh, uh, the defection of this North Korean pilot, which was a big deal. It put everybody uh, in in the South Pacific on alert because we didn't know if this guy was was, was coming in. And it was, was a whole thing happened in the 1980s and there was a, a terrorist attack at Aung San. All of these things were huge events at, during that period. If you know all of that stuff, this movie is way, way, way better. It's only slightly referencing these things, but it drags it all into the real world. So it's not just shootouts. This is all stuff that literally matters right now in Korea, which is why this movie is so popular. Well, there. it sounds like quite a big budget film. Also, if you're staging all those scenes like that, that's it's expensive. Oh, yeah, but the, the the Korean filmmaking industry is actually quite huge. And and this is his first film. And what's funny is most Americans are thinking, well, who is this guy? You've seen this guy. <laughs> Almost everybody's seen Squid Game. Uh, he's a huge, huge star in Korea and a bigger star all over the world now. The film is Hunt. Uh, the film is unrated in Korean with English subtitles. It's at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema downtown Los Angeles, uh, also at other select locations available on digital and on demand as well. Hunt. The quintessential quintuplets movie is a Japanese animated comedy. The film is directed by Masato Jinbo. Charles. Well, this is an example of a genre of anime that is the harem comedy. You have a nice, if somewhat undistinguished guy who is somehow surrounded by all these adorable girls who are after them. In this case, Futaro is the tutor to five identical sisters. Think of the Patty Duke show raised yeah. exponentially. <laughs> Uh, they're, they walk all, alike, they talk alike. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, the question is, you can only tell them apart if you really love them. You know, their parents can and Futaro can, but everybody else, they can impersonate each other. Uh, they're all after him, who is a fellow high school student and their tutor. The show's been running for two years on Crunchyroll and is quite popular. And now this movie kind of wraps everything up and... All five are after him. It's the final high school cultural festival. And the cultural festival is the high point of a high school year in every school anime. And so he has to decide at the end of it which one, you know, he will end up with romantically. And so they replay a lot of things almost um, Groundhog Day style where from each, each quintuplet's point of view... Each one kisses him once, and then he finally has to decide which one he'll end up with, uh, which I'm not going to say, because if you haven't been following the show, you may find them a little hard to tell apart. You don't know them well enough. Um, it's very silly. It's lots of fun. The, again, the show has been quite popular. If you just want you know, a giggle and this kind of, of romantic contretemps, uh, you'll have fun with it. It felt a little long to me, though. Mm. 
the quintessential quintuplets movie directed by Masato Jinbo. The film's unrated in Japanese with English subtitles also available in dubbed versions, and it's in wide release. The romantic comedy Christmas with the Campbells stars Brittany Snow and Justin Long. The film directed by Claire Niederprum and written by Barbara Kimlicka, Vince Vaughn, and Dan Lagana. Andy, what do you think of Christmas with the Campbells? Oi, is what I thought. Um, <laughs> That's I, Hanukkah with the Campbells. <laughs> not a Hanukkah film. Uh, I, I can picture the, the pitch meeting for this, which was, let's make something that seems like a Hallmark movie, but we'll fill it with sex jokes. And it's not a great combination. It's a very by-the-numbers romantic comedy of girl and her boyfriend who were living together are supposed to stay with his parents in Ketchum uh, in the frozen north. And the day before they're supposed to go, he tells her he's breaking up with her after three years. And he's going on a different trip to New York. So she goes to visit and spend Christmas with his parents. Of course, he has a handsome cousin who's visiting played by Justin Long, who's generally kind of uh, automatically charming and here seems kind of miscast because he's doing uh, a Western accent of some kind and he seems uncomfortable with it. But meanwhile, the, you know, the parents just all they talk about is how much they fornicate. I mean, it really is nonstop sexual references. And I don't, you know, I a very high tolerance for smut. <laughs> Critics really need that, don't creepy. they, Andy? <laughs> yes, yes, we do. I look forward to Lady Chatterley's life. <laughs> um, sorry I missed it. Uh, but this just felt so out of sorts. And, and like I say, everything else about it is this utterly by-the-numbers romantic comedy. I mean, you can predict everything that's going to happen. Christmas with the Campbells is unrated. The romantic comedy is at Lemley's NoHo in North Hollywood, and it's streaming as well on the AMC Plus streaming service. Coming up next on Film Week, our John Horn is in conversation with the star of Lady Chatterley's Lover, Emma Corrin, be talking with John in just a moment. Joining us this week are critics Tim Cogshell, Charles Solomon, and Andy Klein. We have more to come on Film Week in just a few minutes and remind you if you joined us late, you can listen to the full hour of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts at kpcc.org or by downloading the KPCC app. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Earlier this hour, you heard what Tim Cogshell had to say about the latest version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Uh, nearly a century ago, D.H. Lawrence published that novel, a story about a sexual relationship between a working-class man and an upper-class woman. It was immediately censored. In fact, uh, Chatterley was banned as obscene in the United States. A new movie adaptation reminds us why the 1928 novel was considered so subversive. Emma Corrin plays Lady Chatterley, also starred as Princess Diana in the fourth season of The Crown. Our John Horn talked with Corrin at the Telluride Film Festival. I did some research before you came in about the history of censorship and yeah. Lady Chatterley, and it is beyond belief. But I'm going to quote a U.S. senator, his name is Reed Smoot. He was a... <laughs> what a name. Yeah, he was a member of the Mormon Church, Church of Latter-day Saints. They loved which it. didn't have a very forward-thinking attitude about sex or women. Here's what he said. I've not taken 10 minutes on Lady Chatterley's Lover outside of looking at its opening pages. It is most damnable. It is written by a man with a diseased mind and a soul so black that he would obscure even the darkness of hell. And it's worth noting that this book was banned until 1960 in yeah. the UK. There's, I think there's two reasons why it was banned, but I'm curious what your thoughts are about why it was banned. I mean, I think it was banned because of the um, explicit sex in the book and the way that it celebrated and examined female pleasure, which is something that I think 
is just becoming a discourse now that we're talking about and certainly hasn't really been depicted on screen before also i think his language is very modern the words he uses around like sex and it's very modern i think it's i think uh, my opinion is if this book came out now people would be talking about it right i think you're right yeah i want to ask about making a period story contemporary because it isn't but i think there's a way in which you and the actors be act and the way you speak that feels very modern and there's something about the first shot of you in terms of your hair that feels very contemporary. And this is still a period film, but was that something that was even discussed about how this is actually just as modern a story as any story is totally. told today? Okay, yeah. how did that come about? What were the conversations? I think when we f I first met Laura, our director, we sat down and thought about why are we making another one? And since we are, then like, how do we make it different and why do we want to make it different? And I think that there's a way that Laura describes the film and the book, which is that it's timely and also timeless. And I think that's what we wanted to capture. And I think Emma Fry really did that with the costumes as well. A lot of the dresses were, they have a nod to the period, but most of them you can buy online. I think people who don't know the book that well would assume that part of what Lady Chatterley's motivation is in having an affair is that her husband is injured in the war, World War I, and is rendered impotent, that he is paralyzed mm -hmm. from the waist down. But that's not, this, her, I'm not going to say her issues, her desires precede that greatly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I noticed in watching the film, because I probably watch films differently than most people, the first three instances where your character is having sex, she initiates the contact every time. Yeah. She's the first to move. She's the first to put mm -hmm. out her hand or show somebody else where they should yeah. put their hand. Ver she is the initi initiator. She, she is not only has a libido, She's not only sex positive, but she wants to get things going. Yeah, Connie, it's totally fine and, of course, justified that Connie wants a sex life. She wants to have sex. It's a huge part of an intimacy. It's a huge part of a relationship between two people. And, and not only that, but there's also this like other side to it is when she starts having sex with Oliver. There is a part of her that still isn't allowing herself to fully experience it. And that's something that we talked about with the journey of her sexuality during the film. That she feels guilty or that she feels that she's never, she can't... She knows she wants to have sex and that she has a desire to. And sh she has, as you say, that like she longs for physical contact. But I think for her, she's never truly been able to access her own pleasure. Maybe she's... I think we talked about she's never been with anyone who has really asked her what she wanted or, or made her stay in her body. And I think especially with her relationship with Clifford is probably... He makes her feel ashamed of wanting those things, as she says in the film. And so we talked about how when she first has sex with Mellors for the first few times, she's sort of not, she's there, she initiates it, she wants it, but during it, she's elsewhere. Right. And then that scene where they're both in the woods and finally he's like, look at me, engage with me. We're in this together. You don't have to disappear, you're here. It's one thing to write a novel about a character who has desire mm -hmm. and is very sex positive. It's another thing to write a screenplay about that. And it's quite another thing to perform that. So in terms of creating, I don't know if you want to call it safe place. I don't, that seems not quite the right word, but a place where you can, and your co-star can feel that they are being faithful to the story and they have what they need as performers and people to feel safe. How do you go about creating that? And what are the conversations that were important to you? I mean, it really was all the intimacy coordinator, um, Ita O'Brien, who worked on Normal People and she has sort of been at the um, forefront of the movement of why intimacy coordinators are so essential. And this is my first time doing this amount of nudity in this this many sex scenes in one project, if, if ever. And, um, <laughs> and I was so blown away by how much I relied on and felt so grateful for her involvement. And I sort of, the way I describe it is like, it's almost as, sh she approached it the same way as you would like a stunt, you know? You're going to move here. This yeah. person's hand is going to be there. Exactly. And then if you're, you're choreographing a fight, you don't just say, guys, go for it. Have a good time. Hope you feel safe. No, you break it down bit by bit because you know that there, more often than not, things would go wrong. And it's exactly the same thing. And there are so many ways in that, then in when you're doing sex scenes, that things could go wrong, that people, everyone has their own relationship with their body and what they feel comfortable with or don't feel comfortable with. And it's really important to honor that and to recognize it and to talk about it. And yeah, she broke it down beat by beat and we sort of said, you know, I'm, you can touch me here and here, but absolutely not here. And 
once we had those things settled, then yeah, walk through it beat by beat. And so we all knew how all the scenes would go. So there were no surprises and everyone was comfortable. And also once those things were in place, it's such a blessing because you can have freedom within it. D.H. Lawrence's book is still banned because of, in some places, or it's just be, been recently unbanned. It's still banned in elementary schools in the States because of what it has to say about sex. And let's just say the United States is not alone in how it views sex compared to violence. And it's mm -hmm. something that is a huge issue in films, that movies that have very loving and accurate and nonviolent depictions of sex are labeled NC-17. They're not, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to see it unless you're an adult over a certain age, but you can kill how many thousands of people you want yeah, you in, a, in a Marvel movie and you get PG-13. Yeah. So knowing that's the circumstances, how does this movie get to an audience? I mean, I would love my kids, they're 22 and 18. Mm. I, would, I think this is a movie that 16-year-old yeah. girls need to see. It's interesting. I was in a film seminar earlier and it was so nice. Such um, These students from the AFI and someone said, I was, w I just was watching it and wishing I'd seen it when I was 16. And I think that's also something I felt when I read the script was like, I've never seen this. And God, I feel like this is stuff I'm still discovering about myself because w it's never been a discourse in society. It's never been something I've been able to see. We were talking just before we started rolling about watching yourself on screen with an audience, <laughs> watching yourself on screen with an audience in which you are without any clothes, <laughs> watching yourself with an audience where you're on screen without any clothes having sex yeah how does that play out for you and is it difficult it was difficult the first time I watched the film I was um it was just on my laptop I was set in a cart and I was with two friends um in New York and I drank a hell of a lot of whiskey and then watched it and actually it was really nice because they loved it and I was so worried that they would find it weird they were so worried they would find it weird but actually they said they didn't at all so I, w I was comforted by that and it was really lovely to watch it can you identify what you took away from this movie going and how it might change you going forward Honestly, I think I've learned a lot from her and from the story about, I don't know, my own journey with sexuality, how I view it in general and how it should be depicted. And also, I've got to say that that dancing in the rain scene, I've never done anything that terrifying and that exhilarating. And if I, I, I've never had that feeling before. We and should say you're dancing in the rain without a stitch of clothing on. Without a stitch of clothing on in the middle of a valley in Wales. And we could, didn't rehearse that because we decided that we wanted the spontaneity of it and we both felt comfortable with that. So we just went for it and it was our first, second week of filming and it was mind blowing and I loved every minute of it and rush, a rush of feeling. That's our John Horn talking with actor Emma Corrin who stars in the new adaptation of Lady Chatterley's Lover. It's streaming on Netflix. For our Film Week critics, I'm Larry Mantle. From all of us, have a wonderful weekend. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events.